Well, good morning. Uh, you can go ahead and grab a Bible and go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians 1. I appreciate Pastor Jonathan giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, he's on vacation uh, this weekend. Um, uh, but we're working our way through the um, uh, book of Ephesians. Um, a quick note, if you uh, haven't already gotten one of these uh, Ephesians journals, um, we have some more uh, that have come in. So if you didn't already pick up one of these, you can pick up one uh, of these for free um, out at our welcome table out in the, the concourse. So these are really cool. They've got, uh, it's got the book of Ephesians on one side, and it's got space for you to write notes um, over on the other side. So it's a really uh, awesome tool to use as we uh, work our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So make sure you go grab one of those if you haven't already. Um, so while you're on your way to Ephesians, uh, some of you have maybe uh, seen the movie Rain Man. It came out in the, in the late 80s, um, had uh, Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman in it. And uh, in, in the movie, Tom Cruise's character, Charlie, he, he's been estranged from, from his uh, wealthy father for, for several years. And uh, he finds out that his father's passed away. And really all that Charlie is, is <clears throat> concerned with is just his inheritance. He's like, what, what am I getting out of this? And so he, uh, he wants to find out how much money his father left him. Well, it turns out his father didn't leave him a whole lot of anything. And instead, uh, his father left uh, a $3 million inheritance to Charlie's brother. But on top of that, Charlie didn't even know that this brother existed. And so Charlie, go, he, he goes to try and find this brother, and he, he finds him. His name's Raymond. And, uh, but Charlie, Charlie can't understand why, why he got nothing when, when his brother got, got $3 million. And Raymond, turns out, is, is like a genius, right? He also has like some really unusual habits, right? So he'll, he, he'll, for example, he's like always stating like random facts and, and numbers. He, he's obsessed with his routine. Like he has to do everything the exact same way all the time. Like he has to watch people's court at the exact same time every day. Like he, he's got all these, all these routines. He, he memorizes the phone book. He always needs his toothpicks with him. Like he's got all these, all these different habits and routines that has to be like meticulously kept up with in his daily life, right? And what's interesting is even though he's inherited $3 million, he's more concerned with all the other minute little details of his life. He's received this massive inheritance, and yet he really doesn't grasp the significance of that inheritance. And he doesn't live like he's gained an inheritance. How often do we as Christians do the same thing? In Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us about this amazing eternal inheritance that we've received as children of God. But how often do we, how often do we actually live like that's true? How often do we get sidetracked and concerned with all the other minute little details of life, right? We can get caught up in planning this. We can start taking care of that, making sure that this project gets done, make sure the kids get to school, make sure that everything at work is accomplished, and a hundred other details of life. And those can be good things, but how often do we get so focused on those things that we forget that as Christians, we've received an inheritance from the God of the universe? How often do we forget to live like children of the King? So in, the, in this first chapter of, of Ephesians, we've been looking at, at this section that goes from verse 3 to verse 14. And if you remember, in, in, the original, in the original Greek, verse 3 to verse 14 was just one big long run-on sentence where Paul is just firing off one gospel truth after another after another. He starts it off in verse 3 by saying that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he just starts listing them off. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're secure. And now... Paul is going to wrap up this section with some final blessings that we receive from God because of the gospel. So go ahead and stand while we read from Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You can have a seat as I pray. God, thank you so much um, for the truths that are in this letter, um, uh, the, even the, the, the truths that are packed into just this small section um, in the first chapter. I pray that you would help us to, to dig in deep into these uh, truths, to understand who you are, to understand who we are, not because of ourselves, but because of you. I pray that, that uh, uh, what's spoken uh, this morning would be your words and not my own, and that we would hear from you and that we would glorify you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we see uh, in this section that, that Paul tells us about our identity is that we're heirs. We're heirs of God. He says that we've obtained an inheritance in Christ. And this is actually connected back to another truth that, that Pastor Jonathan already talked about two weeks ago, the truth that we're adopted. Remember, Paul said in verse 5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so these two truths specifically, they're connected together. They, they're tied directly together, right? Our adoption leads to our inheritance, right? Like you can't get an inheritance unless you're part of the family, right? And, and adoption is something that, that we understand in our culture, right? Like the, it's a really cool picture of the gospel. Parents choose to adopt children as their own, not based on anything that child has done or earned, but simply out of love for that child. Amen. And typically that, that means bringing that child out of, out of a bad situation into a better one, right? And those children come in and they become 100% part of that family, not 50%, not 90%. They have a new identity 100% as part of their new adoptive family. And there's some, some really cool gospel truths that we can see in, in that picture of adoption, right? But in Paul's day, adoption and inheritance looked a little bit different. So when Paul's telling the, the Ephesians about adoption and inheritance, they would have been picturing something similar to, to our modern adoption, but also very different in some ways, right? So in, in the Roman Empire, you still had the, the general concept of adoption where, where parents would, would choose uh, to make a, a, uh, someone their son or daughter, right? But the process looked a little bit different. And it was also typically for a different reason. Roman adoption wasn't usually about rescuing a child from a bad situation into a better one. Actually, in some cases, the adopted person sometimes may even come from, from a decent home and family situation. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even typically children who were adopted. You typically would adopt an adult, most times you would adopt an adult male to carry on your family, to carry on your family name and inherit the estate. Now, why, why was that? Why did they do it that way? Well, typically the, the families that adopted were very wealthy, powerful, prominent families in Rome. And the whole point of, of adopting a son was so that son could inherit the wealthy, powerful estate. So most of the time when, when a Roman uh, would, would adopt someone, it was because either they didn't have any sons to inherit their estate... Or if they did have sons, they didn't think any of them were responsible or worthy enough to inherit the estate and lead the future family. So the father might actually go find someone else, typically a young man who he thought would be suited enough to be his heir. And instead of adopting a child, he would typically adopt an adult because by that point he could tell what kind of man this son would be, how much ability he had, his leadership potential, his wisdom, the, the sorts of things that, that you can't fully evaluate when, when that son is still a child. So the whole point was to choose someone worthy to carry on the family estate. So if a Roman man wanted to adopt someone as his son, he would have to convince that son's biological father to give up control over that son. 
And many biological fathers were, were happy to do this for the right price, right? Because the, it was seen as an honor for your son to be adopted by a wealthy, powerful family. So control over that son would transfer from the biological father to the adopted father. And when that happened, the adopted son would immediately lose all rights and any inheritance that he had had in his former family. But he would gain all the rights and inheritance of his new family. As a matter of fact, he would immediately become the legal heir to his new father's estate. To the point where not even biological sons or daughters in that family could make a legal claim to that estate ahead of him. The adopted son went immediately to the front of the line as the primary heir. So when you were adopted in Rome, number one, you had a new father. Number two, you inherited the estate. Number three, in order to be adopted, your adoptive father had to pay a high price. And number four, this is a big one. All your previous debts were erased. If you owed anything to anyone, it was completely wiped clean. As a matter of fact, it was legally treated as though you had never actually lived before that point. It was as though you had just been reborn. And number five, according to Roman law, an adopted son could not be disowned. Once you were adopted, it was permanent. As a matter of fact, an adopted son was more secure in his inheritance than a biological son. Right? In Rome, you could legally disown a biological son, but not an adopted son. So you can see how when Paul's telling the Ephesians that God has not only adopted them, but he's given them an inheritance, they realize how big of a deal that really is. Especially when you consider the fact that our Heavenly Father already has a son who is not just worthy to be an heir, he's the only one who's worthy to be an heir of God. And yet God still chooses to adopt us as his heirs anyway. He makes us co-heirs with Christ. We have a new father. We have an inheritance from our father. Our sin debt is wiped clean as though we had just been reborn. Not only that, but in order to adopt us, our father paid a high price. He sent his only worthy son to be slaughtered in our place so that we who are unworthy could be adopted and made worthy. We are co-heirs with Christ, meaning we get the same inheritance Christ receives, which is everything the Father possesses. That's who we are. And it's not because of anything we've done. right? Remember, Paul says, in Him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. Even the word obtained in that sentence. In the original Greek, it really means it was obtained for us. So in the, in the Greek, it's a passive verb. It's not active. In other words, it doesn't mean that we went out and did something to obtain the inheritance. It was obtained for us on our behalf. It was obtained for us by Jesus living the life we can't live and dying the death that we deserve to die. And then look at the rest of verse 11. It says, Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I hear some Christians say, well, I don't believe in predestination. Well, yeah, you do. It's in the Bible, right? But it, it, you mentioned it in, ver, in verse 5, too, right? Now, we can have like conversations about what exactly predestination means, right? And, and Pastor Jonathan touched on that a couple weeks ago, right? But when it comes to that, don't, don't get lost in the weeds and lose sight of how awesome this truth is, right. right? Because here's what we do know. Your salvation story began before the universe began. So this is where Roman adoption differs from God's adoption, right? God didn't wait around to see how you'd turn out and then decide whether or not you were worthy enough to be his heir. 
He chose to adopt you as his heir before you even existed. Before you could even do anything to try earning it because we can't even come close to earning it. Right Now, yes, we still have the, the responsibility to accept his gift of salvation and willingly surrender our lives to him. But don't miss the fact that your salvation began before you even began. God started the process of adopting you before he even spoke the world into existence. That's what Paul's telling us. But then Paul tells us that where that process then collided with us and our responsibility. Look at verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard about the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you heard the word of truth. You heard about the gospel. So God started the process before time began, but then one day you found out about it. You might be, some of you may even be sitting in here right now hearing about it for the first time. Paul says you heard about it and you believed in him. You responded to your adoptive father in belief. And what happened at that moment? The end of verse 13, Paul says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Not only are we heirs, but we're sealed. We're sealed. Amen. Remember what I, what I said a minute ago about uh, adopted sons in Rome? They were more secure in their inheritance than even a biological son. Your adoption and inheritance are permanent as a child of God. Your heavenly father has put his seal on you. He's put his stamp of approval on you. Because when the father looks at you, he sees the perfection of the son. And the Holy Spirit seals us to keep us secure until we receive our inheritance one day in eternity. Listen to what Jude says at the end of his letter. He says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before, his, before the presence of His glory with great joy. I don't know about you, for me, there are times where that's one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me to believe. Because I am severely messed up. But Jude says that God is able to keep us from stumbling. That one day He'll present us as blameless in His presence. Listen, God does not leave unfinished business. What he started in eternity past, he'll finish in eternity future. He began our salvation before he even began the heavens and the earth. And one day he'll finish the job and give us our inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. Amen. Praise the Lord. In verse 14, when Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, that word guarantee, it could also be translated as deposit or down payment. right? So when you put a deposit down on something, what does that mean? It means, hey, this is my guarantee that the full amount will be completed. Right? The job isn't finished now, but one day it will be. You and I are not finished products now, but one day we will be. Amen. In the presence of our Heavenly Father, of our Adopted Father, when we receive our inheritance. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit living in you now, working to make you more and more like Jesus, until He completes that work one day in eternity and grants you your inheritance. Back to, to the picture of Roman adoption for a second. Another aspect to that is whenever someone was, was adopted in Rome, they would actually have this big ceremony, almost like we would have a, a, a wedding ceremony. So you would, uh, as part of that adoption ceremony, you had to have seven witnesses. Okay? You needed seven witnesses to verify the legitimacy of the adoption, especially if later on one of the biological children tried to come back and take the inheritance. Because if that happened, one of, the, one of those witnesses could step in and say, no, 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 that adopted son is a legitimate son of the father. 
That inheritance belongs to the adopted son. Now, what does that have to do with with us being sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, in Romans 8, listen to this. Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. No one can dispute your inheritance. It's guaranteed. As a child of God, when the enemy accuses you and calls you unworthy, the Holy Spirit steps in as a witness and says, No, they're mine. They're a legitimate child of the Father. That inheritance belongs to them. Now, there's another phrase that that Paul keeps using over and over all the way through this, this section to tell us why God is doing all this. Right? Why has God chosen us? Why, why has He adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us? Why, what's, the, what's the main purpose why God is doing all of this? Well, Paul tells us in, in verse 12. He says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He says the same thing down in verse 14. God has sealed us to the praise of His glory. And he said the same thing back in verse 6. God adopted us to the praise of His glory. God saved us so that He could be praised. Now, tune in in close, because this is something crucial to the nature of God. And I want us to understand what Paul's saying. God's primary goal in saving us is to glorify Himself. God is God-centered. He didn't save us primarily to make much of us. He saved us primarily to make much of Him. Now, if you're like me, that makes you a little uneasy when you hear that. Right? Because it, it kind of sounds like God's being a little selfish, right? Secondly, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like great news for us, right? I mean, we've been talking about all these awesome truths about our identity, about God bringing us into his family and erasing our sin, giving us an inheritance. And now we're saying it's not even about us? It's all about God glorifying himself? I mean, doesn't God himself tell us in his word that selfishness is a sin, that pride is a sin, that we should be focused on others more than ourselves? But now Paul is telling us that everything that God does is to glorify himself and to point attention to himself. So does that mean that God's just showing off? Is he just using us? I mean, is Paul just telling us that, that, that we're just pawns in God's scheme? Right? I mean, that doesn't seem very loving. Well, let me explain why, number one, it's actually not a selfish thing for God to be God-centered. And number two, why it's actually better for us if God is God-centered. Why it's actually more loving for God to be God-centered. First of all, it is right for God to be God-centered and to magnify himself. Why? Well, number one, he's the only being in the universe who actually deserves it. Right? I mean, it's wrong for you or I to bring attention to ourselves because I don't deserve it. God does. Right? Number two... If God didn't glorify himself more than anything else or anyone else, he would be committing idolatry. Think about it. Idolatry is valuing anything or anyone else more than God. Because there isn't anything or anyone else more valuable than God. So if there's nothing more valuable than God, what could God possibly value more than himself? I mean, think about it. God would actually be sinning if he valued anything else besides himself, if he glorified anything else more than himself. So it's good and right for God to do something for his own glory. But, okay, even if it's right, that still begs the other question. Is it actually loving? If God's doing that, does that mean that it's not loving towards us? Or are we just meaningless pawns in God's scheme? Is that what Paul's telling us right here? 
Well, first of all, consider the alternative for a second. Would it actually be, be loving if God did value us more than his own glory? Here's what that would mean. If God valued us more than his own glory, that would mean that there was something lacking in God that only we could satisfy. It would mean that there was a human-shaped hole in God's heart, and it's your job to fill the void. Good luck. Anybody want that pressure? I don't. Right? So I, uh, in the past, I've, I've had like some issues uh, with uh, with uh, my vehicle, and I've I've, I've managed to, to like fix some things on my on my car before. Not because I'm mechanically inclined, but because people on YouTube are. And but don't if you have a problem with your car, do not call me, okay? Because number one, I only sort of know what I'm doing, and secondly, I don't want that pressure. Okay, if I mess up something on my car, that okay, it's my car. But don't ask me to come work on your car, okay? Well, if God values me more than his own glory, if God needs me, then that means he's dependent on me to fix something in him. He needs me to fulfill and satisfy him. I don't even want to try fixing somebody else's car, let alone the God of the universe. For God to value us more than himself would not only be unloving, he would then cease to be God. Because he would be lacking something that only we could fulfill. The very nature of God means that he is self-sufficient. It means that he needs nothing and nobody. He doesn't need us, and yet he adopts us anyway. That's what's so loving about this passage. It would be way less loving if God adopted us because he needed us. The fact that he doesn't need us makes it so loving. This was something that, that C.S. Lewis struggled with before he, before he became a Christian. So if you, if you know C.S. Lewis's story, he was a staunch atheist, um, and he actually tried disproving the existence of God before he collided with the gospel and became a Christian himself. But before that happened, one of Lewis's main critiques about God was the idea that God requires us to praise him. Right? I mean, you see commands all throughout the Bible where God commands us to worship him, to glorify him, to praise him. Right, And like... That didn't make sense in Lewis's mind. He, he, he was like, what kind of God would demand that I praise him? It, to Lewis, Lewis put it this way. He, he said that, that he thought that God was being like, like a vain woman who was just self-absorbed and always needing everyone to compliment her constantly. Right? Now, ladies, it could be a vain man, too. I didn't say it was a woman. C.S. Lewis did. Okay? Before I get in trouble. Okay? But eventually, Lewis realized that if God is self-sufficient... If God needs nothing, then he's not a vain, selfish person who constantly needs compliments in order to to be fulfilled. On the contrary, Lewis realized that when God invites us to glorify him, he's inviting us to enjoy the most valuable thing in the universe, which is himself. Think about it. The most loving thing that God could possibly do would be to give us the most valuable thing in the universe. And he cannot point us to anything more valuable than himself. It would be unloving for God to save us in order to glorify us. Instead, he saves us so we can glorify him. Because our greatest pleasure comes when we glorify God. That's why as a church, our mission statement talks about being fully restored and satisfied in him, not in us. God's glory and our satisfaction are not at odds. They're in harmony. Glorifying God is what truly satisfies us because that's what we were made to do, right? A hammer is made to hammer nails, right? If you take that same hammer and try sawing a board with it, it ain't going to work, 
right? If you try doing that, that, like in that moment, that hammer won't be fulfilling its purpose, right? It's only fulfilled when it does what it was made to do. If we were made to glorify God, we won't be truly fulfilled unless we do that very thing. So God saving us to the praise of His glory is a loving thing. It brings us back to what we were made for. Any of y'all ever, ever been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. Okay, so good number of you. Okay, So even if you haven't been to the Grand Canyon, like just picture like the, the coolest place you've ever been, like the, the most awesome view you've ever seen. Okay, But for those of you who've been to the Grand Canyon, the, I went there when I was like two, so I don't really remember it. I'm told it was pretty cool. Um, but like whenever you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, if you've been there, whenever you went to the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked out at how vast and majestic it is, in that moment, how many of you said to yourself, I am awesome. No, of course you didn't say that, right? In that moment, you're so focused on what's in front of you. You're so focused on the sight in front of you, you don't have time to think about yourself. Like, if I start thinking about myself in that moment, that's a distraction, right? The most enjoyable experience in that moment is not to think about myself. It's actually to forget about myself and be caught up in the awesomeness that's right in front of me. How much more should we be caught up in the awesomeness of God? When we think about how he's chosen us, how he's redeemed us, forgiven us, secured us, sealed us, adopted us as his heirs, that should lead us to just worship in awe. The most natural reaction to salvation, the most satisfying reaction to salvation, is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1, to live to the praise of his glory. Let's pray.